Hi, my name is Trevor O'Keefe, and I'm the pastor at Olive Branch Christian Fellowship. We're a Jesus-loving Bible church who are committed to studying the words of Jesus, walking in the ways of Jesus, and partnering in the mission of Jesus. Thanks for joining us on that journey today. Uh, And with that, I'm going to have the trotters come on up. They're going to read for us this morning. So thank you for being with us. Open a Bible to the book of Philemon. Good morning. Going to read uh, Philemon 1, 1 through 25 this morning. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved friend and fellow laborer, the beloved Aphia, Archippus, our fellow soldier, and to the church in your house. Grace to you and peace from God, our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I, I thank my God, making mention of you always in my prayers hearing of your love and faith, which you have toward the Lord Jesus and toward all the saints, that the sharing of your faith may become effective by the acknowledgement of every good thing which is in you in Christ Jesus. For we have great joy and consolation in your love, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. Therefore, though I might be very bold in Christ to command you what is fitting, yet for love's sake I rather appeal to you being such a one as Paul, the aged and now also a prisoner of Jesus Christ. I appeal to you for my son Onesimus, whom I have begotten while in my chains, who once was unprofitable to you, but now is profitable to you and to me. I am sending him back. You therefore receive him, that is my own heart, whom I wish to keep with me, that on my behalf he might minister to me in my chains for the gospel. But without your consent, I wanted to do nothing, that your good deed might not be be by compulsion, as if it were but voluntary. For perhaps he departed for a while for this purpose, that you might receive him forever, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. If then you count me as a partner, receive him as you would me. But if he has wronged you or owes you anything, put that on my account. I, Paul, am writing with my own hand. I will repay, not to mention to you that you owe me even yourself besides. Yes, brother, let me have joy from you in the Lord. Refresh my heart in the Lord. Having confidence in your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. But meanwhile, also prepare a guest room for me, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be granted to you. Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you, be with your spirit. Amen. Thanks, guys. Do you remember that story in the Gospels where Jesus is confronted uh, by the religious leaders? Well, I mean, it happens a lot, doesn't it? But do you remember the last time it happens, where it seems like all of them kind of line up and take their turn? From one to the next, they go, each of them asking their questions, until finally it says that a young lawyer shows up, and when he does, he begins to ask Jesus, what is the greatest commandment of all? And you remember Jesus' response was that you should love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and that you should love your neighbor as yourself. So think about what Jesus taught his followers, what he's teaching us. It's that we're to love God with all that we are, and we're to love other people in the same way or with the same measure or even with the same kind of care that we care for ourselves. But do you remember what Jesus would later tell his friends? Shifting the standard now of the kind of love that we should extend to the world around us You remember that as he sat with his followers, he told them a new commandment, I give to you that you would love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Jesus sets a new standard. He didn't just set a new one though, did he? He lifted it. He lifted the standard, not just love other people the way that you love yourself, but love other people the way that I have loved you. It's a crazy thing that Jesus does by lifting the bar that high, but then he later goes on to explain what it would actually look like to love someone the way that Jesus has loved us. When he said it this way, he said, this is my commandment that you'd love one another as I have loved you, and greater man 
or greater love, excuse me, has no one than this, than to lay down his life for his friends. This is what it's going to look like if you're going to love like Jesus. You're going to give of yourself again and again, even as Jesus has done for us. And I'll tell you, this all sounds really great, but how in the world are we supposed to love like this? Like Jesus has loved us. How am I going to love them enough, others enough, that I place their needs before my own, even loving them self-sacrificially? How am I supposed to do that? It's a beautiful thought and a, a great exhortation, but where's the power to do this? Well, toward the end of John, who wrote John's gospel, toward the end of his life, John would write a series of letters, and in the first of those letters, he'd make a statement in chapter 4, verse 19, where he says that we love him because he first loved us. And the hymn that's added, you'll notice in your Bible, is italicized. It's given to try to give by Bible translators some clarity because the statement of we love because he first loved us seems so open-ended. But it's telling you, it's teaching you that there's a quality of love that, that we're capable of because we have experienced a quality of love that only Jesus gives. Jesus gives us this powerful, transformative love in our lives, this grace-filled gift of love that he gives us. It isn't just something that we receive, but then it's something that we can reflect, that we can dispense and give, that we have a capacity to love like Jesus, but because we've experienced and received the kind of love that only Jesus can give. And without argument, when you think of the ways that God has loved us, the most loving thing he's ever done is forgiving us because to forgive us, he had to give his very life for us. That's what the book of Romans tells us when it says that God demonstrated, he proved his own love for us, and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Remember, scripture teaches us that I have the capacity, the ability to truly love others around me as God loves them because I have experienced the quality of love that I receive from God himself towards me, someone who's broken and sinful and fallen. And it's been wisely said that we're most like God when we forgive. And I believe that the, the capacity to love and forgive someone is something I'm capable of doing because I'm a daily recipient of God's love and care and grace and forgiveness for me. As I'm receiving that, that doesn't just affect my life and then it frees me, but it frees me to become someone that I wasn't before. It frees me to love people and to be forgiving. You see, we're wrapping up our series through Philemon talking about forgiveness. But if we're honest, talking about things like this, like we just did, this is so countercultural, isn't it? Like when you think about our modern cultural moment that we find ourselves in in, in 2022, th this is very different than what our culture is pushing for. In fact, our culture, this era, is marked by something that they're referring to as a cancel culture. It's really the opposite of a forgiveness culture. And in cancel culture, well, it's, it's someone's transgression or maybe even a well-intentioned error at times will lead to their being publicly marked and intentionally ostracized. They'll be canceled and discarded, never to be looked that direction again. I recently read an article that was entitled, or I guess less of an article, more of a rant, but a well-written rant entitled To Hell with Forgiveness Culture. And the author said this, they referred to forgiveness culture as an Abrahamic culturally ingrained guilt trip that that's all that it is. And they demanded, and I quote, forgiveness must be earned, and the refusal to forgive someone is a justifiable response. Another article I recently read that talked about how in this culture that forgiveness, it was entitled, is the other F word in our current culture. The author wrote, you've probably heard the popular axiom, the saying, which is widely accepted as true without controversy. Here's, here's the saying, that not forgiving is like drinking poison and expecting others to die. I believe, the author wrote, the poison is not the refusal to forgive. The poison is the injustice a victim experienced in the first place. In fact, being pressured to forgive is yet another form of poison. There's nothing wrong with you, she wrote. You can't forgive because the perpetrator does not deserve it and because what they did was unforgivable. Furthermore, to do so, to forgive, would be the worst kind of betrayal of self, end quote. Another document I read began with this statement. I'm not embarrassed to call myself a Christian because I'm ashamed of Christ. I'm embarrassed to call myself a Christian because I supposedly have the same faith as the people who insist that we be doormats for others to walk all over. Okay, now think about this. There's a clash between 
what we should live like in our culture, a grace-filled, forgiving, loving community is clashing against a cancel culture movement that's saying there's no more room for this. Graciousness and forgiveness are no longer lauded or applauded at all as virtues. They're viewed as weakness and toxic cultural uh, barriers or even really toxic cultural betrayals for people to live forgiving. Now, please don't miss me saying this because I think it is important. Understand, I, I think that sometimes people's visceral reaction to a forgiveness culture is there because there have been terrible, un, terribly unhealthy expressions of it because at times we've had a fatal flaw in that culture. The flaws that we failed to be clear that forgiveness and reconciliation are two very different things. And when we fail to differentiate between those two things, then we create a world where justice and forgiveness can no longer coexist. Because to forgive carries with it this expectation for trust in a relationship to instantly be restored as if nothing has ever happened, and that's broken. It's true that restoration cannot happen until forgiveness is first granted, but forgiveness does not obligate trust in relationship to be granted to the one that's wronged you. Trust in relationship are things that are earned. Trust in relationship cannot be earned until repentance is present. You see, forgiveness, it might only take one person. It's, it's my choice. It's me, the person who's been wounded or harmed, choosing to release the corrosive anger that demands that someone else repay me personally. But restoration and trust is not a one-person job. It's a community project, you could say, that requires at least two people who would work together after repentance is offered and trust is reestablished. So Scripture's command for you to forgive does not leave you in an emotionally or physically abusive relationship with no help or no hope, simply requiring that you'd vulnerably stay there because to forgive, quote-unquote, means to forget that anything happened at all. That's a very dangerous and broken thing and thought, and it's not really even a scriptural thought. Forgiveness is a gift that's given. Trust is a precious thing that's earned. But contrary to what culture is telling us right now, our opinion when we're wronged is not merely, or our options, excuse me, when we're wronged is not merely to forgive and forget or to cancel and move on forever. Those are not our only options. Cancel culture has placed justice as the highest value, leaving no room for forgiveness because the assumption in our modern culture is that the two, justice and forgiveness, cannot coexist. However, someone can be forgiven and still face consequences for their actions. Justice can still be served for them. Please don't miss this. Think about this. Forgiveness and justice are both expressions of love. Forgiveness and justice are both expressions of love. If I tell you that I love my wife, and when someone is abusive to her, I'm quick to forgive them without any boundary or parameter. I just dismiss it and allow it to continue. Then you would say you do not love her, even if you're demonstrating forgiveness as an expression of love, you do not love her if you do not stand for justice. It's the same in my relationship with my children. If I say I love them, but I let someone belittle and berate them without speaking up and saying that this is enough and there's a boundary and a line, you'd say you do not love them because although you're forgiving, you're not at all willing to stand for justice and to stand for them. Can we be honest? We would fail to say that God is loving if God is only forgiving and yet not just. We expect and demand, it's true, in our minds and hearts that God himself would, would be a God of justice, but we're also begging that he would be a God of forgiveness. Both are expressions of love. I sat with a friend just recently who had to bury his father much sooner than he should. And the reason he was burying his father was because of someone else's negligence that caused an accident that, that took his father's life. Now, for my friend, his willingness to forgive this man was and is an expression of love. But my friend's deep desire also for justice in the court proceedings was not an unloving thing or an unforgiving thing. Please don't miss this. His forgiveness ensured that he sought for justice and not revenge. His forgiveness ensured that he sought for justice and not for revenge. Cancel culture is stepping in and they're demanding that what we should do is let's go back. If we're going to do the Bible stuff, let's go back to the Old Testament and let's do the eye for an eye and the tooth for a tooth. 
But that represents a gross misrepresentation of what God was saying and doing in that era. That was not a license that was given to every member of society to extract justice from other people. That was actually a directive given to judges who were tasked with upholding justice over an entire community and nation. And that directive would protect the culture from not just justice. Think about it. It's not protecting it from justice. It's protecting it from vengeance. Because if you knock out my tooth, I'm ready to knock out all of yours. You hit me in the eye with something and it damages my vision. I want to come to you and be like, you know what? I want you to see what it's like to live without your vision. I'm ready to take both of your eyes. You steal bread from my table, I burn your house down. Maybe a little over the top, I know, but... But it was to keep vengeance from being the climate, from being the norm in people's experience in the nation. But it wasn't to get in the way of justice at all. Although cancel culture and a forgiving, grace-filled culture cannot coexist, justice and a forgiving, grace-filled culture can coexist. I mean, make no mistake, someone always pays when you're wronged. When you forgive, you're no longer demanding that someone else make it right, but understand that someone still pays. It's just that that someone now becomes you. You pay twice. You pay when you're wronged, but you pay also when you forgive them. And that was true for Jesus. It's true for us too. Like forgiving a financial debt. If they owe you money and you forgive it, you still are paying for it because now you're working overtime to make up, using those extra hours to make up the difference of what you're now short when it comes to your time to pay your bills. When it comes to bread off your table, there's still someone paying for it and that you're sitting there at night with your stomach growling. When it comes to even you've been wronged socially or vocationally, where someone damaged your reputation or someone robbed you of some privilege that, that should have been yours at work by taking credit for your work, you now have to work double time in order to re-earn your reputation, in, in order to fix what's been wronged uh, to you or what's been taken from you. As Danny said to you last week, justice means that they pay. Forgiveness means that I'm willing to pay myself because forgiveness is letting go of your right to retribution, your desire to make things even. That's what forgiveness is. It's releasing that desire. And the short story of Philemon illustrates this very well for you. And I need to pause just to apologize. My voice is already beginning to crack. This could get very awesome. You're going to be introduced to junior high Trevor. Um, I may have been at the Padre game until late at night. I may have yelled a little bit too much. Um, it was a good day. You know what this little book lacks in volume, we've already seen. It, it actually makes up for in value. It's just a short little postcard. But the subject matter is of extreme importance and significance for us because in the same way that Job, is, his story is given an entire book of your Bible, many, many chapters, lots of, lots of space, geography in the book. It's given to show you that people suffer. It's given to show you that you're not alone in that. But in the same way, Philemon is given to show you that people are wronged and that forgiveness is hard. That's why this book is here. That's why this person's individual story is present. Because you and I walk through these same things of the painful process of being hurt by someone else and needing to forgive. And in this story, you're familiar because we've talked through it before, that there's three main characters. Philemon, it means affectionate one or kindness. He's the master, a wealthy man who's in Colossae. And Paul is a prisoner who's writing to him from afar and who's appealing on behalf of Onesimus, a runaway slave who had wronged Philemon and seemingly, if you look at what he says, when Paul says, and if he's wronged you or owes you anything, he's implying that Onesimus also stole from Philemon when he took off and hit the road never to return. And Paul said, well, then I'll intervene and pay for that wrong. Onesimus is the guy who ran away, though. And we, we really don't know why or, or how Onesimus sought Paul out or if Onesimus was also put in jail and became a fellow prisoner with Paul. But what we do know is that while with Paul, he met Jesus. He became his son in the faith, verse 10 tells you, while in Paul's chains. He led him to faith in Jesus. And in our time two weeks ago together, we talked about the amazing love and power of God's forgiveness in our own lives. That Paul in this story, he comes up with the perfect solution, but it's a costly solution. He doesn't ignore the crimes or forget the debt. Instead, he offers to pay the debt himself. You see, justice and forgiveness were present. Someone outside the situation is willing to pay to make things right. But then we talked about how this is a story not just of Paul and a runaway slave. This is a story of Jesus and each of us. 
who have wronged God and run from him, who have no way of making things right. But Jesus intervenes and says to the Father the very things that Paul says here, that I will repay this with my own hands. I'm asking that you would receive him back forever, verse 15. I'm trusting that you will do even more than I ask, verse 21, that you'd receive him, verse 16, no longer as a slave, but now more than a slave. He's now a member of your family, a beloved brother. There's a perfect solution, but a costly solution. It would cost a father the life of his son. It would cause him to watch his son bleed to death on a cross because he would not ignore the crimes or forget the debt. He'd pay for it with his own hands. My friends, the beauty of this story is that it's telling you that you can be forgiven and that there's no sweeter message than forgiveness. As we often say here, the gospel tells me that I'm far worse than I had imagined, but simultaneously far more loved than I'd ever hoped or dreamed. You see, the book of Philemon presents an illustration of my salvation, but you've noticed as well that there is an exhortation here for some application, isn't there? It's not just about my salvation as the one who's wronged God and needs forgiveness. I'm not just the one identifying with him who's done the wrong. I'm also identifying in the story with the one who's been wronged. And I'm sure that although all of us fit both those criteria, none of us are very happy about either of them. But today we'll look at it from Philemon's perspective. But before we do, there's one piece of this that I think is really important for us to take a moment to address. And that's a topic that this book presents, and that's the topic of slavery. You see, Jesus' teachings and the rest of the New Testament did not attack slavery directly. They didn't. However, the teachings of Jesus sowed seeds that led to the destruction of slavery. It would be destroyed not through social upheaval, but because of changed hearts. People now viewing others as image bearers, having intrinsic value, being so loved by God that God was willing to leave heaven and bleed and die on a cross for them. And Philemon's story illustrates this. He doesn't demand that Philemon frees his slave, nor does he even take the time, Paul doesn't, to teach here that slavery is in and of itself evil. He did, however, instruct Philemon to receive him, verse 16, and treat him as a beloved brother. What Paul did is he left no room for the abuse of slaves. So think about this. The teaching of the gospel not only removes slavery's abuses, it in the end would destroy slavery itself because slavery could not continue without its exploitation and abuses. Jesus died on one hill, it's Calvary's cross. But what he died for, yes, was my sin, but it was also the world's brokenness. And the cross became the answer even to the brokenness and injustice of slavery itself because it removes someone's ability to mistreat and exploit another human being. And when slavery's abuse was removed from it, then slavery itself uh, itself would erode underneath it. And I realize, I'm not foolish, I know that some people misuse scripture to promote slavery in different eras of history and to justify their owning and exploiting of other people. That was not because they took the gospel too seriously. It's because they didn't take it serious enough. Look at this story as an illustration of that. We've got a whole culture right now who's saying that Christianity is so regressive, but look at what the gospel does when it goes into cultures. Look at the places that have barred the gospel and look at how they still treat women. Look at how there's still a caste system in those cultures. The gospel so transformative and freeing that Jesus didn't need to chase every social issue because the cross he chose to die would address all of them and remove their power and culture completely. Now, I'm not going to give you points right now, but what I'm going to do is try to organize some thoughts by breaking up the remainder of our discussion into three sections. So I want to talk to you first about Philemon very briefly, and then let's clarify once again forgiveness, and then let me reintroduce you and myself as well to the power to forgive, which is the most important thing we can discuss. So first, let's talk about Philemon, and then about forgiveness, and then about the power to forgive. So here's your your pastor pun of the day, like, enter Philemon sandals with me. Uh, Philemon, Paul is very careful to point out to us, is a person of character. Did you notice in the introduction that he's really lauding him? He's telling him what a wonderful person he is. He's a good guy. Paul commends him as such. Verse 1, he's a fellow worker with Paul. Verse 1 again, he's willing to open his own home because the church would meet in his home. Verse 5, he's a person that he says is full of love and faith. Verse 6, he's eager even to share that faith. Verse 7, he's a refreshment to the saints of God. Paul's commending him here saying, you are a great guy. And yet the reason Paul is writing this is not just because of Philemon's character. He's writing the letter because of the conflict in Philemon's life. 
He was a great guy, yes, but he was a person who had been radically wronged. The household servant whom he himself was calling in his house Onesimus, which means profitable, took advantage of him and stole from him and then ran far from him. And I hope that you understand that Philemon sharing in pain that for some of us we felt and pain like this can only be injected by someone who's close to us. The conflict he found himself in is that he didn't deserve to be treated this way, to be taken advantage of like this. And he would want to see justice and retaliate and see Onesimus get what he deserved, which the law gave room to the nth degree of what he could do to him, including take his life. And the culture around him would pressure him to make an example out of Onesimus because the slaves outnumbered the freemen so dramatically for a slave to rebel and not be punished. What if it gives them all an idea? What if they all rebel? Well, then the power scales are shifted. No, you have to do something. You see, the conflict would leave him, though, with the choice. And this is what Paul's really appealing for, isn't he? He's appealing for Philemon to make a choice. His request to Philemon to forgive a runaway slave, you need to know historically, is not completely unheard of, but this one is different. Because Paul asked for more than just forgiveness of the wrongs that were done against him. He's asking for something that was completely foreign to the way that the world functions. Okay, so get nerdy and historical with me for a minute. Uh, Pliny the Younger was a first century Roman senator um, the world-famous West Coast IPA was named after him because he trolled people who drank grain drink rather than fine wine like us really fancy people. And so they've named the greatest beer in California after him just to troll him 2,000 years later, which is so funny. But he was a guy who was alive in the time of Christ, and, and he wrote someone about forgiving a slave. The, the story goes, and the letter is still preserved for us, that Pliny writes his friend, whose name is very difficult to pronounce, so I won't bother trying, about a slave who had run away from him and really angered him by doing that. But that runaway slave came to the man in power, this guy Pliny the Younger, and begins to beg that he would intervene on his behalf so that he wouldn't be punished and so that he could go home. And this guy, Pliny, decides, you really do seem sorry. So he gives him a good lecture, sternly warns him that it will never happen again. He'll never give him another chance. But then he writes a letter to appeal to his friend saying, you should really take him back. Now think about this again, get nerdy with me for a moment. Fi or Pliny is the senator. He's the one in the position of power. The slave owner is the middleman in the power structure, isn't he? But the freed slave is at the bottom of the social pile. The freed slave needs to seek out a friend in a high place and the senator then uses that high place and position to try to convince his friend to take the, this repentant man back into his home and threatens this slave saying there'll never be another chance for it. And the letter is actually something that worked. This guy Sabinaeus took the slave back. The freed slave was lucky that he could return and not face serious consequences. All the while though, what happens is the social structure, the social order remained untacked, intact of, of the politician, the rich man, and the penniless slave. Because forgiveness was because of a promise that it would never ever happen again, and forgiveness was granted because that middleman, the master, was yielding to the powerful man above him. And so the scales never shifted. The structure stayed in place. Yes, forgiveness was granted, but he would come back into the home still as a slave. And the only reason he'd forgive him was because he feared the senator above him. Now think of the contrast then. Paul is writing as a prisoner, not a high-ranking official. And his request was not just to forgive, it was to deconstruct and demolish the social structure of the day because he'd say in verse 16, don't just take him back as a slave, take him back as a peer and a brother, a beloved member of your family. Do you see what the gospel has the power to do? Something that could not be done outside of the scope and power of the gospel of Jesus. That it shifts the power structure so that all of them are equal. That all of them are now members of a single household and family. And we don't know for sure what Philemon does with this letter. A part of that is because we don't have his return letter from him back to Paul explaining himself. Another part of that, though, is because this letter pulls us into the tension with him to hear the request of Scripture to forgive and for us to feel the tension that it creates in us, leaving us with a question to answer. Will we forgive others? There's a fourth century 
writing that's called the Apostolic Canon that mentions a freed slave named Onesimus who became a, a leader in the early church. So it's implied, you'd believe, that Philemon did forgive him. But I don't want to just talk about Philemon. I want to talk about forgiveness. That's that second category of things we'll talk briefly about. And that's it. I just want to admit to you that forgiveness is really hard. And if you don't agree with me, then I just question, maybe you've never forgiven anybody. Or, or maybe you just haven't really been wounded by others. I think much like seeing, uh, seeing, we're seeing this play out really in Philemon's story, I've found that healing from wounds and choosing forgiveness is most difficult when the wound was inflicted by someone or some place that should have been safe for us. I mean, sure, maybe that wound for you has been a coworker or a friend, but what about a wound from within your own family? What about a wound from a parent or for some of you, even from one of your own children? What about a wound from a partner? What about a wound from a church? I found that healing from wounds and choosing forgiveness is most difficult when that wound is inflicted by someone or someplace that should have been safe for us. And what I found is that it's so very disorienting to have to process pain that's injected by someone or someplace that you'd never thought you needed to guard yourself from. And I don't know if I really understood this, like just how difficult forgiveness is, until the last handful of years when I found myself really deeply wounded by other people. And then I began to realize this isn't so easy or simplistic at all. And I can't say, well, I'm a really forgiving person. People who say that, I don't know how much they've really been wounded and how much they've chosen to forgive. Because I think once you've been up against it, most all of us would say, this is a really difficult, very painful thing. A handful of years ago, I had to work through a series of people that I really needed to extend forgiveness to. And it was very costly and and very difficult. And a friend of mine who knew that I was really struggling He reached out to me, a well-intentioned friend, and he said this. He said, Trevor, forgiveness is never thinking about it or talking about it ever again with yourself, another person, or even God. And I've come to believe that what my well-intentioned friend described is more denial than forgiveness. And I hope that you'd agree true forgiveness is not pretending that you're not hurt. It's not saying that what the person did was not wrong or damaging in your life. True forgiveness is not relieving the other person of their responsibility. Forgiveness really is releasing God to work in you and in that person in the midst of all of that messiness. Can we all admit and agree that, that true forgiveness is not a quick process and that true forgiveness is not a guarantee that you'll immediately stop hurting? Forgiveness is the choice to not punish or seek revenge. It's not the choice to stop hurting. Can we all agree that true forgiveness is not a feeling? that none of us feel like forgiving. It's a choice and a decision to say yes to God and say no to my emotions that are screaming at me to get even. I mean, if you're sitting around waiting to feel like forgiving someone, you'll wait the rest of your life because you'll never feel like it. There's an author, he said it this way. He says, forgiveness is not an emotion that leads to an action. It's an action that will lead to an emotion. Forgiveness is not closing your eyes to what someone else has done. True forgiveness, here's what I've learned in my own life, instead takes the time to slow down and feel the hurt and even to potentially count your losses. I've even had times where I've had to stop and list those losses instead of just ignoring all of them and acting like nothing has happened. True forgiveness is is something that takes place once you allow yourself to feel the full weight of what someone has put you through, and then you make the choice to take step one onto a pathway of forgiveness. The idea of forgive and forget sounds really good. It's really cliche, though, and it's honestly something that I don't really think is possible, and I don't even know that God himself does it. Because he didn't merely just forgive us and forget that we wronged him or owed him, to forgive us, he provided himself as our substitute and sacrifice. To forget it, he first paid fully for it instead of requiring us to do so. He may have cast our sins as far as the east is from the west, but first he left heaven to enter the depths of hell's experience for you and in the place of you. He didn't just forget your wrongs. He removed them when he'd pay for them with his own life and blood. And in in scripture, it tells us in the future, we see him as a lamb who is slain. He bears the scars and the reminder of what it cost him to forgive you. He didn't merely forget it. When he cast it as far as the east is from the west, he chose not to retrieve it and hold it over your head anymore. He didn't just forgive and forget. You know, last week, Danny walked you through 
Jesus' teaching on forgiveness from Matthew 18, where Peter's asking Jesus, am I off the hook at seven times? You know, is that, is that good enough for me to forgive somebody? And Jesus responds, no, 70 times seven. And if you've been deeply hurt, you start to realize that does not just apply to someone who does the same thing over and over again 490 times in your life. Like 490 times backs over your mailbox and you're supposed to just keep forgiving them. Now, when you've been deeply hurt by someone, you start to realize that it applies to the kind of hurt that someone inflicts in you that needs to be given, forgiven, excuse me, over and over again. Each time that the consequences of their wrongdoing is felt by you, you forgive them so many times for that same thing that you lose count at some point. That's what Jesus is talking about. You could say it this way, forgiveness begins with the choice, but it often means walking along a path. And there is an ongoing choice to continue to forgive, which means continue to stay on that path. Yes, forgiveness starts with the choice, but it continues as a journey where you continue to forgive. I think you could even argue that that's true for Jesus, where Jesus undoubtedly made a choice to forgive us. In fact, scripture tells us he made that choice before creation even began, because before the foundations of the world, your Bible tells you the lamb was already slain. And throughout human history, Jesus would walk along the path of forgiveness all throughout history until that path would lead him to a little lonely garden called Gethsemane, where he would wrestle with that choice and choose still to stay on that path towards forgiveness, regardless of how costly it would be. Forgiveness is really hard. And some of you know this all too well. It it may be hard, but it's possible with God's help. I do believe that. It may be hard, but it's necessary for your growth and freedom. I've learned that because I've failed to forgive and seen how it's impacted and poisoned me. It may be hard, but it's required. Jesus himself had said in Matthew 6, for if you forgive other people when they sin against you, your heavenly father will also forgive you. Or Luke chapter 6, forgive and you will be forgiven. Or Mark chapter 11, and when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins also. He even instructed us to pray, you remember, forgive us our debts as we also forgive our debtors. I'll say it again, though. It's one thing to forgive and another thing to trust and be reconciled, just as it's one thing to be wary and cautious And it's a whole different thing to be full of hate and resentment. And we need to be careful to discern where those lines get blurred because of our personal experience and pain. Because I've just learned it's way easier for me to forsake someone than to forgive them. Cancel culture, really appealing when you're really wounded and you just want to discard someone and never look their direction again. The problem is it's so damaging to us not to forgive them. We carry around unforgiveness and bitterness to our own demise. Forgiveness is my only alternative to torment. And this is deeper than me just saying, and and that's because there will be torment in eternity separated from God for unforgiveness. It's more than just that. That story again in Matthew 18 you looked at last week of the unforgiving servant who was personally forgiven of so much and yet refused to forgive another of so little by comparison. He was sent into torment But if you have unforgiveness in your life, the truth is you are already in torment. You're in a prison of your own making when you choose not to forgive. In my life, what I found is that their offenses provided like raw materials what I then used to construct the prison of my own making. And initially, I built that to protect myself. But then all of a sudden, I found myself being a prisoner who's stuck inside of it. I'll say that again, because I think that this is true. Other people's offensives, they provide raw materials that we then use to construct a prison of our own making. We make it initially to protect ourselves, but then we find ourselves living in isolation as a prisoner who's stuck inside of it. Forgiveness is the only way to free myself from torment. Unforgiveness leaves me stuck in that prison. Forgiveness breaks the walls down and allows me to live free again. So often, We don't want to forgive because we don't want that other person to win, but we are the ones who are losing so much by not forgiving. You see, forgiveness doesn't let someone else win. Forgiveness lets you go free. It's a beautiful book by Dallas Willard that I read this past week while traveling. Really beautiful book that I read thinking about our series in Psalm 23 that we start next week, but it's called Life Without Lack. And here's what he said about forgiveness. He says, the person who has the most power over your life is the person you have not forgiven. That person holds a part of you in bondage. To forgive 
is to regain yourself again. There's no hiding it that forgiveness is really hard and that it can be such an overwhelming task. Just remember in Luke 17, when Jesus is talking to his disciples about their need to forgive, how did they respond? Do you remember? They said, oh Lord, help us. Increase our faith. They recognize this is so very difficult. And then Jesus' response to them was, he says, if you have faith as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be pulled up by its root and be planted in the sea and it will obey you. Scripture is so clear that it's damaging for us not to forgive them. We carry unforgiveness and bitterness to our own demise. The illustration Jesus uses there of a mulberry tree is, is super fascinating, where he says you could uproot it and you could discard it into the sea, which the sea, ancient idiom of chaos and evil, throw it back, get, get rid of it. Let, it, let it lie and sink down into the abyss. Let it go, your bitterness. But think about what he says about this. A mulberry tree is a tree that grows massive, but the truly unique thing about it is that the, the roots of a mulberry tree can sprout more trees. So if you chop down the mulberry tree because you say, like bitterness, this shouldn't be in my life, like unforgiveness, I don't want this there, but you don't do the hard work of digging deep, the roots are still present, and sooner or later it'll pop, 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 sprout up again through the surface. And for those of us who have been deeply wounded and struggled to forgive, that's our experience. Sure, we chop down the tree and we say, it's cool, it's fine, I'm over it, it's behind us, I don't want to talk about it anymore. And then all of a sudden we, we recognize those feelings popping up, sprouting up, and we feel like out of nowhere, I thought I dealt with this. But then again, it begins to show up. I, I believe the writer of Hebrews is picking up on this bit of Jesus' teaching when he would write in chapter 12, warning us of a root of bitterness that springs up contaminating and poisoning us. Roots go down. They affect the soil that they're implanted in. Bitterness has this damaging and poisoning effect in our lives. It does not have a damaging effect on the person that we're bitter at. Bitterness is not just a sin. It's an infection that will plague and affect us. It's a corrosive form of anger that's eating away at us from the inside out. What I'm telling you is that I've learned that forgiveness takes its toll, and it's a greater toll on me than on the other person. Forgiveness is not only done for the sake of the one I'm forgiving, it's done for my own sake. So that my relationship with God is unhindered, so that I don't have to live with this toxic burden that I'm choosing to carry, that I'm wanting to hold over somebody else. See, I think it's important for us to talk about Philemon. I think it's important that we clarify forgiveness, but the most important thing, and here's how we wrap up, is we've got to reintroduce ourselves to the power to forgive. And being introduced to the power to forgive means reintroducing ourselves to Jesus and his gospel all over again, all over again, all over again, again and again and again. I mean, how do we do it? How do we forgive? Well, Jesus in scripture, he taught us at least three things that you're to do if you want to forgive someone. And the first is you, you begin by choosing to pray for people. That really is the first thing Jesus taught. In fact, Miss Ruth will put it up here in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44. He told us to do just this. He said, but I say to you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you, and pray for them which spitefully use you and persecute you. He's telling you, you need to love your enemies. We've already talked about it. the most loving thing that God has done for us is forgive. And sometimes the most loving thing we can do for others is to forgive them. And what are we to do? We're to pray for them, he said. And I give you permission, pray about them first if you need to. With honesty and vulnerability. If David was the man after God's own heart, and yet he's praying to God saying, would you break their teeth inside their mouths? I think God's not intimidated with you sharing and praying, talking to him about how you actually feel about the situation. I'm certain he's not intimidated or afraid of me voicing my feelings to him. But I can't only do that. I can't just pray about them. At some point, I have to shift to begin to pray for them. Get those things, those feelings, those thoughts off your chest. Yes, cast your cares upon him, but then begin to pray for God's provision for them. Then begin to pray for God's blessing over them. Then begin to pray for God's healing in their life because it's so very possible, isn't it, that they're hurting you because of their own woundedness. Now I'll tell you, I hate doing this. So much so that I've learned that it's very difficult for me to do it. So I sit down and at times... Uh, don't creep through my Bible because you know my secrets now, but uh, at times I'll use someone's picture or a name on a bookmark 
as a reminder, every, every morning when I'm spending time with Jesus, that this is someone I need to pray for because of my unforgiveness in my heart. There have been times where I've written out prayer requests and used those as a bookmark because then when I sit with Jesus and go, I don't, I don't want to forgive them. I'm angry. I'm hurt. And I don't have words for this, that I can begin to read that prayer I've already written. That's a prayer asking God to bless them and care for them and heal them and for God to heal my heart and my woundedness that still exists inside of me. He said, pray for them. But what's the other thing he said there in Matthew chapter 5, verse 44? I say to you, love your enemies, bless them that curse you, do good to them that hate you. And yes, pray for them that spitefully use you and persecute you. Do good to them. That's the second thing Jesus did teach us. If we want to love somebody and forgive them, do good to them. And I'd assume that everyone who heard Jesus' statement and still today hears that statement has someone probably that comes to mind. Jesus made this comment in the first century, although everyone might have had a specific person come to mind. Generally speaking, in this cultural moment with the Roman Empire presiding over them with authority and power, what they would have pictured were the legionnaires. They would have pictured the ones who were there exploiting them and there pressuring them, who occupied the land, the notorious cruel and heavy-handed legionnaires. These were monsters in the eyes of the Jews who Jesus is addressing in this moment because they could abuse them and beat them and they could compel them to do whatever they wanted. You know, there's an idiom that still exists today to go the extra mile for someone It means to do something that's more so, that's beyond what's required for you. And the expression actually comes straight from the Bible, specifically from Jesus' statement in Matthew chapter 5, verse 41, where he says, whoever compels you, forces you to go one mile, go with him too. The statement in that verse is a reference to a practice that existed in the culture where the Roman soldiers could come and they could compel you by law. You had to carry their pack. You had to carry all of their gear, up to 100 pounds, up to a mile in distance. At least a 1,000 paces was the rule. They could tell you to do it, and if you fought back, well, that you were in contempt of Rome and dealing with the punishment. To go the extra mile was to say to that Roman legionnaire at the end of that time where you're probably muttering under your breath about what a dirtbag this person is for exploiting you and your people and these evil, cruel monsters— By the end of that mile, to stop and look at that man, and and as he goes to take the pack from you, say, you know what, I'll I'll keep walking with you. I'll take it an extra mile. Is a choice to lean into some compassion. Is a choice to do good to somebody. Is a choice to begin to wonder what it's like to be this man who's far from his home obeying orders. It was a choice to have compassion. Jesus taught his followers to do what no one expected, to go above and beyond what was required, and to do good to those, even those who had wronged them. He was teaching them, don't return evil for evil, change the game. Rather than letting the game drag on, going blow for blow, and instead return, rather than evil for evil, respond to evil with good. You know, Jesus had said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And I'll tell you, I deeply value, I treasure my time. And when I spend my time praying for and caring for others, I now have a vested interest in their lives and in their well-being. And my heart towards them begins to subtly, slowly change as Jesus works in my heart to transform it. How do I forgive? Well, I pray for them. I do good to them. But the most important thing, and this is the final thing, is that I experience forgiveness personally. How am I to forgive somebody else? I have to experience forgiveness personally. You know, close your Bible. I just want you to listen along. I believe when we are forgiven by God that we are also simultaneously freed to forgive other people. Because our experience of God's forgiveness, of our offenses, which are numerous and massive, give us then the capacity to forgive others of their offenses towards us. You see, the power of the gospel of Jesus doesn't just rescue me, it transforms me. It doesn't just rescue me from the judgment and penalty of my action, it begins to transform me, making me into the image of Christ himself. Remember, the scripture teaches me that we love because he first loved us. That we have a capacity to love and forgive someone because we are the daily recipients of God's love and care for us. Because I'm daily preaching the gospel to myself, receiving it afresh each day that I am more broken and sinful than I'd ever imagined, but simultaneously more loved than I'd ever hoped or dreamed. 
which is precisely what Paul actually is reminding Philemon of in our story. He asked him to forgive in light of something. He asked him to forgive in light of the fact that he had been forgiven. In verse 19, Paul said, you owe me your own life besides. He is my new, Onesimus, my new son in the faith. I'm asking you to forgive him. Don't you recall that you, like him, also needed forgiveness? And I led you to the source of real forgiveness, Jesus himself. Paul would send this letter to the whole church. It would have probably initially been read just in front of Onesimus between he and Philemon, but it would later be read publicly in front of the whole church. And with it came a second letter, the letter to the Colossians, that church that met inside his home. And it included this verse in Colossians 3, verse 13. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any one of you has a grievance against someone else. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. Hear that, forgive as the Lord forgave you. Forgiveness is not just some suggestion, it's a command that God gives, but God supplies the power to forgive. Obedience is the first step. It verbalizes that I'm willing to forgive. Remember Jesus taught in Luke 7, he said that he who is forgiven much loves much. And I've learned that sometimes forgiveness is only possible when you come to understand and experience the greatness of God's forgiveness in your own life. And the truth is, God doesn't ask anything of you that he doesn't first do for you. He doesn't ask you to forgive without first forgiving you. Neither does he require anything of you without also providing the resources that will undoubtedly be needed by you. And the gospel, Jesus himself, is what he first did for you before asking you to forgive anybody else. And it's who he gives to you, the resource that you'll need to empower you to forgive other people as well. Remember that story, Matthew 18, what we've talked about already in reference because you walked through it last week where I have to forgive 70 times seven and then he jumps into that parable about the man who's he's forgiven of billions and then he holds over the heads of someone else uh, a monetary value that's in in the hundreds or maybe the thousands. It's so different. The scales are tipped and it's not the same at all. He's thankful to be forgiven of so much. He's unwilling to forgive someone of so little. And when the master sees that that's what's happened, he sees to it that the man is severely punished because of his unforgiveness in spite of the great amount of forgiveness he was shown. Jesus is making a point in the story that forgiveness is sometimes only possible when you begin to understand the greatness of God's love and forgiveness towards you personally first. There's no comparison to what I've done to God and what people have done to Trevor O'Keefe. There's no comparison. So how can I hold against someone else something so small by comparison to the greatness of the debt that God continues to forgive me for? And if God is willing to forgive them even for what they have done against him, then how can I not forgive them for what they have done against me? You see, my refusal to forgive others and seeking my own revenge is arrogantly and wrongfully seizing the authority of God. And that attitude implies that I believe that God's unjust that he's indifferent or unable and incapable as a judge. That's what it implies. But God is far more able to deal with injustice and offenses than we are. You know, at my house, I have an old snowboard in a bag. It's so old. It's from when I was in high school. The technology's probably changed five times over. But inside that bag was at one time a very trendy uh, set of goggles that had rose-colored lenses inside. It helps you to pick up better depth and low light when there's uh, shade and clouds and all, and, and it's difficult to see bumps and whoops and things like that. I used to snowboard a lot. I don't anymore because I'm old now, and it hurts your body. But those red snowboard goggles, obviously, they helped with that depth perception that I just explained. But the other thing that they did is every time I put them on, the whole world was in a shade of red. Everything looked different when I looked through a lens that had a color to it, a tint to it. My whole worldview had shifted every time I stuck those lenses on. My friends, I've learned that I have to look at the wrongs done to me through the lens of what I've done to God and what he has done for me. I've learned that I have to reframe my worldview by putting something else on to view it through, and it's the lens of the gospel. It's a loving, patient, gracious God, and knowing what I have done to him, but what he has also done for me. And when I view the wound from someone else through that lens, I am enabled to begin to forgive them. 
it frees me to forgive them. In light of what God has done for us, how can we not forgive them? As I told you in our first week in Philemon, in our little study here, that the, the byproduct of the gospel is that it leaves us both humble and confident. It leaves us humble because I recognize how broken I am. I'm like the runaway slave in this story without hope or remedy for, for reconciliation between God and I. And then I see what it costs God to intervene and interject like Paul does here and says, charge it to my account. I will repay with my own hands. I promise it. I'm humbled by that. But at the same time, I'm left confident because I recognize that I didn't have to earn or prove my value because I have a God who so loved and valued me that he would become breakable and broken for me. And and void of the gospel, I've just learned looking at the world and, and people in my life, void of the gospel's transforming work in the life of a person, you really can't be those two things simultaneously, both humble and confident. You'll either be humble or confident. Void of the gospel, a humble person is rarely, if ever, confident. They're playing the comparison game and it's crushing them. Just as a confident person is rarely going to be humble because they too are playing a comparison game and they don't see themselves as in need of much forgiveness. They see themselves as superior and better. They don't live then with humility. And here's why this matters. It's because a humble and secure person is capable not just of receiving forgiveness, but also of extending forgiveness. Think about this. A humble person who lacks confidence and security is terrified and pulls away from forgiving another because I have too much to lose. I have to fight for my security and I have too little of it to give it up. And you've, you've wronged me and you, you've lied about me. You've wounded me. I can't let this go. I lack the security to extend forgiveness to someone else. And a proud person who lacks humility, they're not capable of forgiving other people because they don't see their own need for forgiveness. And if I'm better than it and above it, then why would I extend it to you? Get to my level. But a humble and secure person is able and capable not just of receiving forgiveness, but also of extending forgiveness. And humility and security are the byproduct of the gospel's transforming work in my life. And that humility and security then give me the ability and power to forgive other people because my significance and security is found in Jesus himself. And no matter what they take or tarnish or how they wound me, they can never take the truth of what Jesus has done for me and doing inside of me. Humility, it always leaves me with this realistic view of my own brokenness and therefore creates a gracious view of others who I understand are equally in need of grace and love and patience and care, just as I am. But that kind of security makes me capable of being wronged and mistreated and taken advantage of without sending me into a state of panic or fight or flight. And it allows me to forgive them because that does not rattle or change the depth of my security because I find my security in Jesus' love for me. That I am a son who is welcomed back in the home, not as a slave, but as a son and a beloved brother. I don't know that we can truly forgive others until we first appreciate and receive and experience the power of God's love and forgiveness he extends to us. And the gospel tells me that I am forgiven and it enables me and empowers me then to forgive other people. Oh, it's been wisely said that we're most like God when we choose to forgive. In fact, our forgiving of others is so important to God that he dedicated an entire book of his Bible to illustrate and teach it. And so, Father, we finish this little book thanking you, not just for the illustration of our salvation, that we, the slave, are brought in as a son because of someone who intervened as our advocate, who would pay with his own hands. Jesus, we thank you. We also thank you that there is here an exhortation, a call for us to be a forgiving people. But I'm so thankful, God, that you don't just apply pressure for us to do the right thing. You are the source of power and life that enable us to do it. And Jesus, this is hard. But I'm so thankful that you know what this is like. You were wounded by friends. You had your family turn their back on you. All of creation turned against you and abandoned you. Even those who were appointed to uphold justice, they They declared you one deserving of death, the only perfect one who's ever walked this earth. Jesus, you know what it's like to be hurt and wounded and betrayed. 
And yet you on a cross, you're crying out, forgive them. Jesus, thank you that that is echoed over our heads today, that we can be forgiven. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for the transforming work that enables us to echo those words too. God, I pray for my friends because I know what a journey it's been for me and how difficult it can be in moments to choose to forgive. And so I pray, Jesus, that with you in our sight, that you would enable and empower us to do just that, to forgive. Jesus, we love you and we thank you. In Jesus' name. Thank you again for listening to the Olive Branch Christian Fellowship Podcast. For more information about our church, go to olivebranchcf.org.